Welcome to the Littlestown Chapel podcast. Make sure to check us out on the web at littlestownchapel.org. Now, we hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Scott Morgan. So as we've been focusing on getting unstuck and moving forward spiritually this beginning several weeks of the new year, we've talked about the fact that really to move forward, you have to admit that you're stuck. You have to admit that you're in a jam, you're in a place where you're not where you want to be, and you got to stop denying that, and you have to ask for God's help to move, move forward. And after you ask for that help, you need to be willing to commit yourself to surrender to his hope and to surrender to what Christ has done. The fact that there is a God who knows about you, who sees you, who loves you, and who thinks you matter to him, and he wants to help. And not only that, do you say that there is a God like that, but did you say, Lord Jesus, I do surrender to you, I do commit myself to you, my life and my will, and I yield to you. Work in my life because I desperately need hope. I need your help to be able to move forward and get unstuck. The thing is, is that Christ, as he leads us and works in us and empowers us, he calls on us to look inside and see what is it that we've done to get stuck. What are the choices we've made? What are the things that we have done that have caused us to get into this predicament that we're in? And not only that, after we see what we've done, then we need to do something about it. It's it's not just safe to look inside, but it's also safe to go make things right. That it's possible to go make amends. It's possible to go ask for forgiveness and make restitution if necessary with the people that we've hurt. Maybe that's part of being relationally stuck or stuck in other sinful habits or hang-ups because of the people that we're hanging around with. And we can make those relationships right. We can start building bridges of reconciliation. But not only do we need to go seek forgiveness, but we need to be willing to give forgiveness and grant forgiveness to the people who've harmed us and hurt us. Today we want to build on that, and as we step out of denial and get God's power and we surrender to his hope and we look inside and see what we've done and we begin really building those relationships, we can kind of sense we're starting to move forward, we're starting to get unstuck, but we need some momentum. And the momentum that we need is to be willing to develop a lifestyle of serving others. Now I wish you guys could have been here this week when it snowed. Friday was funny, but it was even funnier earlier in the week because the staff, my, you know, Josh, our assistant pastor, and Vicki, our, our church administrative assistant, and myself, we were still here, and, and it had been snowing, and, and, you know, we've been blessed with this five acres of land. It was a gift, a dollar an acre, when we were given it back in, two, uh, you know, 1988, but it has this one little peculiarity that makes it a very difficult place to have a church, and that is our parking lot's on a hill that faces away from the sun, and you, it's easy to get in, but it's hard to get out when it's snowy and icy. And I wish you could have seen the Chapel Grand Prix that day. Okay, the thing is, if you come to church on a snow day, you should never be afraid to come to church on a snow day if we're having church because there's all these friends here that will push you out, okay? But when it's me and Josh and Vicki, okay, it's going to be interesting getting out. So Josh, Vicki gets up the hill and she races off. And Josh's van, he finally gets up the hill. (laughs) 
you know, half a tank of gas, you know, quarter inch of, of t rubber off the tires. The, the neighborhood smells like burning rubber, you know, the whole thing. But he gets, and you know, the lot was almost bare by that time. So you get, you get what I mean? Okay. So he gets out. It's my turn. It's my turn. And, and I've got traction control on the little Sonata that we have. And I'm, where's the power? What's going on? The, the, the tack is not even going up. You know, what's going on? And I finally hit that button, vroom, like that. And it just goes right up the hill. The thing is, the thing is, once you're getting up unstuck, once you're going up the hill, once you're going against the, the ice and the snow and you're finally getting forward progress, don't stop. Please don't stop. You got to keep going so that you get all the way out. Many of us, we struggle with hurts that people have inflicted on us and how we deal with that. And we understand that it's not our fault that they abused us or harmed us or hurt us or molested us in some way or took advantage of us and exploited us. We understand it's not our fault, and, but we've come to that and we've wrestled with this, I know, how do I forgive them? And it's a hard thing to forgive because maybe they're still doing things like that and how do we set up the boundaries to get away from that? But we, we begin to do that and we begin to get unstuck from that hurt. And others of us, we're dealing with those attitudes in our minds. Maybe it's discouragement, depression, anxiety, things like that. And we're finally learning the truth about life. And we're learning about the truth of our relationships and the truth of who we really are in Christ. And all of a sudden, those attitudes that have been kind of weighing us down and clouding our thinking, those, those clouds begin to evaporate and they begin to dissipate. And we begin to think more clearly because we've got the truth. We're not lied to anymore. And others of us, we've been struggling with habits of anger and lust and bitterness and greed and gluttony and all kinds of other things. And we're finally getting to the place where we understand that those pleasures and those habits and those things don't have to control our lives. And that's not how we have to cope with the hurts and habits and hardships that we go through, the, the stress that we, we don't have to cope with our stress that way anymore. That's not our default way of handling stress. And we understand that we can move forward and we're starting to see that change and we're moving forward, but we get stuck again. In the passage of scripture I want us to look at today, we see Jesus challenging his disciples to understand that service is what's most important because service, we'll say it this way in our series of lessons, that service is about, about keeping that forward momentum, that forward progress in doing the things that God is calling us to do, experiencing growth, maturity, fruitfulness, and the abundant life that Christ is, is calling us to. I'll say it this way. If you're in recovery, it's, it's moving forward in service that your recovery continues. It's moving forward in service that we really experience the abundant life and all that God has planned for us to enjoy and experience with Him. It's moving forward in service that we really keep from getting stuck again. So let's talk about what it means to, to serve. I'd like you to take your Bible and let's turn to... The Gospel of Mark in the New Testament, Mark chapter 10, and we're going to start reading at verse 32. I know the sign, said, the slide says 35, but okay, I'm an old man, I was forgetful. It's verse 32, that's where we're starting. And I, it's on page 846. Okay. <clears throat> I'd like you to follow along. Because this, this key to serving, it's about giving yourself away. It's not about you, not about me. It's about serving and giving ourselves away. And we struggle with, 
It's so hard to serve. It's so hard to give ourselves away. It's ingrained in us by our culture that we need to serve ourselves and look out for ourselves. But Jesus is telling us why we need to serve in this passage and how we're able to do it. So let's, let's follow, just follow along as I read, beginning um, Mark chapter 10, verse 32. This is on page 846. And they, that's Jesus and the 12 disciples and some other folks that were following, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed. Those who followed were afraid. And taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was to happen, saying, happened to him, saying, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I'm about to be baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be the slave of all. And then would you read verse 45 with me, please? For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is God's word. <clears throat> now in this passage, Jesus is saying great people serve. The people who are truly great in God's eyes, in God's kingdom, they're the people that serve. But the trouble is, serving is so hard, it's so painful, it's so costly. So how do we overcome the natural barriers that keep us from serving? How do we build that spiritual inertia, get rid of that inertia rather, and actually get, mo get uh, forward motion? How do we do that? How do we get unstuck when it comes to service? And in this passage, Jesus gives us three things that I think will really help you and I get unstuck when it comes to serving and how we truly begin to, can begin to put other people first and sacrifice for them. The first thing that he wants us to notice is this whole conversation that he's having with, with James and John. And it's, it's, it all revolves about God's pattern for who is truly great. Now let me set the scene for you. So Jesus and his disciples and other people who are following along, his entourage, okay, his posse, he's sitting there going along, and as he's going along, they're headed toward Jerusalem. 
And the thing is, is that we, as we read this story here in Mark chapter 10, as we compare it to a parallel account of the story in Matthew chapter 20, the people who are with Jesus, the 12 disciples included, they're amazed that Jesus is going to Jerusalem. In fact, it says that he had a look of determination that he was headed toward Jerusalem. And they're shocked by this because he's been telling them, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and when I get to Jerusalem, guess what's going to happen? They're going to arrest me. They're going to put me on trial. They're going to beat me. They're going to spit on me. And then they're going to kill me. And the guys in the group are saying, and you want to go to Jerusalem? Huh? Why would you go there? What is this all about? And yet Jesus is determined to go there because he's on a mission. And his mission is to go through all that when he gets to Jerusalem. That's what he's there for. That's why he's come. And so they see him doing that. They hear him explain a third time that he's going to Jerusalem and he's going to go through all this suffering and he's going to die at the hands of his enemies. And they're, they're kind of stunned by all this. But then John and James, two brothers who were two of Jesus' disciples, they kind of come to, so to speak, and they begin to thinking about this that Jesus has just said, not only is he going to suffer and die, but he's also going to rise from the dead. That's the good news. Okay, but then they go up to Jesus in verse 35 and they say, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. You know, it's like a blank check, you know, just write us a blank check and we'll fill it in and please do it. Okay, I find it absolutely astounding that these guys are thinking about their own self-advancement when Jesus has just said, I'm going to go and I'm going to die. And they're thinking, okay, but what's in it for me? (laughs) What are we going to get out of this? All right. And so they say, Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? In verse 37, they say, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. So they realize that what Jesus is saying, they think he's the king. They understand he's the Messiah. And they understand that he's going to glory and he's going to rise from the dead and he's going to rule from a heavenly throne, the seat of authority, And they think, well, there's got to be a throne right there next to him on either side. Hey, why don't we ask if we can sit there next to him? Why don't we ask if we can have his authority, if we can have his power, if we can have the rights to rule over his kingdom with him? I mean, after all, we're his closest disciples, right? When Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration, it was Peter, James, and John that were sitting there watching. When he went into that house and he raised that little girl, Jairus' daughter, the, the, the synagogue leader's daughter who had died, when he raised that little girl back to life, it was Peter, James, and John that got to see all this kind of stuff. They're in there tight with Jesus. They're thinking that their closeness to Jesus gives them certain privileges above the other disciples. So Jesus, when you enter your kingdom, we want to sit there right next to you. We want to have your authority. We want to have your power. And the thing is, is that it says later on that the other disciples, they became indignant. They were very angry because they wanted that same privilege as well. And earlier in chapter 9, when Jesus talked about that I'm going to go to the cross, I'm going to die, I'm going to be crucified there, Peter says, oh, Lord, that's not true. May that never be. And that's when Jesus famously says, how would you like your friend to say this? Get behind me, Satan. You know, calling him Satan. And Peter, Peter is not about the suffering that Jesus is about to go through. James and John are not thinking about the suffering that Jesus is going through. The other disciples, they're not thinking about focusing on the suffering that Jesus is about to go through. They're just thinking about, well, how do I get ahead? How do I get ahead? 
How do I consolidate power in my life? Where do I get authority? How can I be in control of what's going on? And we do this all the time. We network with people because we think that through these relationships, we can call in you know, favors and get what we want from them. And we amass money because we try to buy and control security and happiness and privilege. We do that. And, and we, we just do all this kind of stuff. Maybe it's intimidating other people. Maybe it's threatening other people. Maybe it's you know, bluffing and coercing other people somehow. Maybe it's acting Mr. Humble Pie. Oh, I'm nobody. I'm just nothing like this. And people go, oh, you're here. We'll help you. And it's whatever it is, we do this kind of stuff to try to get other people to do what we want. To exercise authority over other people. And what Jesus is saying in this situation is, is that God has a unique pattern a pattern for how He gives authority and glory to people. And that pattern is there first has to be suffering and you go through the suffering and the heartache and you come out in glory. You go through the hardship and the turmoil and the disadvantagement and you come out lifted up and exalted. You've got to go through suffering to get to glory. I mean, this is totally opposite what Satan said to him during the temptation. You remember from Mark chapter 4, excuse me, Matthew 4 and Luke 4, the story of Satan appearing to Jesus in a wilderness and tempting him. What did Satan say? Look, if you just bow down and worship me, I'll give you all these kingdoms. You'll be in charge of all these kingdoms over all the earth. It'll all be yours. Just bow the knee to me. You don't have to go to the cross. You don't have to suffer. You don't have to do anything like that. Just worship me. It's easy. It'll all be yours. And Jesus says, no way. He resists that because God's pattern is you go through suffering to get to glory. Now, Jesus explains this to the disciples, okay? So Jesus says to them in verse 38, you know, they've just said, can we sit on your right hand or left? Can we be in authority? They're not thinking about suffering themselves. They're not thinking about going through hardship themselves. Can we just sit there? Can we be glorified with you and, and, and be exalted and given this position of privilege and power? Can we receive this? And they said, they, he asked them this question in verse 38, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? You want this, but do you know what it's like? God's pattern is you have to go through suffering. And he describes that suffering two ways as he uses the word cup and he uses the word baptism. And when he talks about cup, he's not referring to the communion service. And when he refers to baptism, he's not talking about getting wet as an initiation rite to become a Christian. He's not saying that either. He's using the word cup in the sense of like they used it in the Old Testament when God gave his prophecies and warnings of judgment to rebellious Israel and the rebellious pagan nations that God's cup of judgment was going to be poured out on them and it was like sour wine and this cup of God's judgment was like a, 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 a goblet of wine and the, and the people that were being judged would have to drink that goblet of wine down to the very sediment, the dregs that are on the bottom of it and they would have to drink that and they would suffer all the punishment that God was about to pour out on them. And this is what Jesus is thinking of later in Mark's gospel in chapter 14 when he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. You see, Jesus understood very clearly that he was sent and he was called. He was born into this world in order to drink that cup. 
to suffer the judgment that you and I deserve because we're sinners, because we rebelled against God. God's wrath is poured out upon the human race and Jesus Christ willingly took that cup and drank it, so to speak, as He hung on the cross. So everything He's describing in verses 32 to 34 about going to Jerusalem and suffering and finally being condemned and killed, that's all about drinking that cup, suffering that judgment, taking that suffering willingly. He said, are you, are you willing to drink that cup? Because that's what I'm about to drink. Yes, I'm going to be glorified and exalted. I'm going to be raised from the dead, but I've got to drink that cup first. And then he says, are you willing to be baptized with the baptism that I'm being baptized with? The idea of baptism in the first century world, yes, it was this, this washing, this ritual washing and being immersed or dipping something into the water and, or the dye and bringing it back out. Certainly it represented that, but people would talk about you know, being baptized in fire or baptized in, baptized in battle or things like that. And they're talking about being plunged into suffering, plunged into hardship, plunged into heartache, just being dunked into it, plunging into it. Not just tipping your little toe and, I'm not sure, it seems like it's too cold. It's this idea of, no, I'm just, I'm doing a cannonball into it. I'm being dunked into it. Plunged under the waters of this hardship and suffering. That's, that's what I'm about to go through. Are you willing to go through a baptism like that? Now, John and James kind of fold themselves, a bit naive, say, yes, we're able. They don't even know what they're saying yes to. Yeah, I'll do it, like a little kid, you know. Are you willing to do everything I say in order to be able to go to Hershey Park? Yes, I'll do whatever you ask. Go clean up your room. Oh, no, Dad, that's not fair. Okay. James and John are a little bit like that. They're like me. They're like me. Sure, Lord, I'll do whatever you want. Except that, <laughs> or that, or that, or love those people. Sure, we're able. And you know, the beautiful thing about Jesus is that he doesn't condemn them and say, are you kidding me, you bunch of liars? He doesn't say that. I think he does acknowledge that they were going to try to. In fact, if you keep reading through the Gospels and you get into the book of Acts and you read chapter 12, James, the very guy who's just said, can I please sit next to you in the kingdom by, a th by you and your throne? on my own throne, that very James was the leader of the church in Jerusalem and he gets martyred for his faith. He's killed by King Herod. And so he does drink the cup and he does get plunged into the suffering. And John, the same guy, his brother, who's asked for this privileged position of power in the kingdom, John's the one who in the book of Revelation, the last book of the New Testament, we read about him, he's in exile on this little rocky island in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, far away from family, far away from home, isolated in exile, away from all those people. But God appears to him, Christ appears to him in a vision of the, of the coming kingdom, the return of Christ. And John sees that, but he... He suffers that loneliness and that abandonment and he dies there. So yeah, James and John did drink the cup. Yeah, yeah, they were baptized with it. And I think Jesus is acknowledging that. Their enthusiasm certainly made Jesus love them. Their loyalty certainly endeared them to the Lord. But notice what he says then 
In verse 39, yes, you will drink this, drink this cup and you will be baptized with this baptize, baptism. But, verse 40, to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. This is the second thing you need to understand and I must understand. If we're truly going to humbly serve, it's not about me avoiding hardship and service. It's about being willing to engage in it. I need to be willing to plunge into serving others, even if it hurts. I need to be willing to sacrifice if it means truly honoring God and putting him first. And so that's God's pattern. But God has a prerogative. He has a choice that he makes as to who really gets to be in charge, who has the power and authority in his kingdom. And that choice is his. Even Jesus limited as he was as a human being, choosing to lay aside his divine power and authority and privilege, he was not privy at that time to what God the Father was going to do about who would be sitting next to him. He had laid all that privilege and that knowledge and that information, he had laid it aside, not ceasing to be God, but just laying aside the privileges and the, and the, the characteristics of being God. He laid that all aside. He voluntarily did that. So he says, it's not for me to decide who gets to sit next to me. You know, oh, there's my two BFFs. I'm going to let them come sit next to me, my best friends. Come here, I got a seat. I saved your seat. That's not what Jesus is doing. That's the Father's choice. And so he says, it's, it's given to whom it has been prepared. The Father has a plan for who's going to sit there. Now the thing is, is that... <laughs> We struggle with this. We struggle with jealousy. We struggle with other people getting ahead, especially if we feel like we got shortchanged in the process. And that's exactly what happens with the other disciples because they've seen Jesus marching up ahead, going to Jerusalem, and they kind of see James and John say, Jesus, Jesus, we want to talk to you for a minute. And they, they run up and they kind of have his ear, but they're saying it loud enough that the 10 that are walking behind, they're listening in. And they hear this whole conversation of, of James and John asking for this privilege of power in the kingdom and they're probably happy that Jesus put them in their place but they're at the same time indignant they're angry and jealous that James and John were seeking some kind of advantage and privilege over them and we all struggle with that how come he got the promotion at work how come she got a raise and I didn't how come you're letting him ride up front with you, Dad, and I still have to sit in the back seat? How come? How come they're advantaged and I'm disadvantaged? How come they have a privilege and I don't? How come they get power and I don't? Why am I still suffering back here? So it says that they were indignant, and Jesus tries to deal with this immediately in verse 42, and he calls them to himself, and he says, now look, I want to remind you of something very important that you see in your world, and this is how you operate, but I want to show you that there's something different. Jesus called them to them, and he said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. Now, he's just making a common observation. They know this for a fact. They've seen it in their daily life. When they look at, especially, not so much among the Jewish rulers who were under the authority of the Romans, but when they looked at the Roman soldiers and the Roman officers, when they looked at King Herod and other people like that, they saw very clearly that those that were in authority were exploiting and taking advantage of the people under them. That's what he's talking about. They're great ones 
lorded over them. Their, their, their rulers are exercising authority. Their Gentile leaders are lording it over them. These were two derogatory phrases that Jesus was using to describe their kind of leadership. Those leaders were saying, it's all about me. You serve me. You make me great. You pay my taxes. You do this. You follow me. You go my way. You do what I want. Look, a leader does ask his followers, her followers, to follow. I mean, Jesus is asking the 12 to follow and obey him. So that's not the problem. The problem is, is when we're using the people that are following us as leaders, men and women in leadership, at school, at work, at home, wherever it is, when we're asking them to serve us for our advantage instead of for their advantage. We're asking them as servant leaders to yield to us so it will benefit them and benefit others. That's what true servant leadership is all about. We kind of banty those words around. You hear them, those of you who've been in sales meetings, training meetings at your work, at your school. We believe in servant leadership. And really what they're saying there is about you serving us. When really, when you read in Scripture here, Jesus says the true leader yields himself, the true leader yields herself to serve the people they're guiding and directing and leading. You serve them that way and lead them to that desired place that your business, your family, your school, your community, your your club, your, your class needs to go. You lead them that way. You see, Jesus is saying here, you need to be willing to serve because God has this pattern. You go through service and you go through hardship to gain the authority and power. There's the glory after the hardship. But you also have to understand that God has his plan for who is the true leader. It's not the person that necessarily got elected that's the true leader or the person who's been appointed by the parents and they inherit a leadership position. It's not that. It's not necessarily the most popular or the most beautiful or the most wealthy person that should be in authority. But God ultimately is working and putting people in power. Yes, I know in our country we vote and our leaders are elected by the people, right? But ultimately God had a hand in that. And we need to recognize that. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that God approves of everything they do, they do or likes everything they do? And I just want to flat out say, no, he doesn't. He doesn't. But it does mean that every person that has been put into power, whether you know, it's parents in a home or you're the president of your class or you're a, a manager at your work, an officer in your, your, your military organization, whatever it might be, whatever your authority is that you've been given, you have a responsibility to God for how you use it. And you need to use it to glorify Him by serving other people. That's what we're called to do. And that's what true servant leadership is all about. And so Jesus is saying here, Power and glory is something that God gives to whomever He wills. Authority is what He gives to those that He wills to do. Not because they're better, not because they deserve it. It's what He chooses to do. It's His sovereign plan. And then this whole issue of you go through suffering to be able to get into that position of glory. You can't circumvent that in any way. Now the thing is though, we need to understand very clearly what Jesus is saying here because He says there is this incredible paradox 
as to who in God's eyes are truly the great people. Because he says here, it shall not be so with you. You're not to lord it over others. You're not to use your leadership to exploit other people. But rather, it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be the slave of all. So if you truly desire to be great in God's eyes, you've got to go low by serving others. That's what we're called to do. And that's who the truly great people are. The truly great people serve. They humble themselves and they serve. They humble themselves and they put other people first. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying this whole ethic of who is great and who is powerful, it's flipped on its head. And it's the people who serve. And he uses two words there. The, the one who, should, who would be great, they have to be your servant. The one who would be first has to be your servant. The one who would be great has to be your slave. And he's saying something that sounds absolutely ridiculous in the, in the ears of his listeners. What do you mean someone humbling themselves and being a slave to be great? I mean, slaves have no rights. Slaves have no privileges. Slaves have to do whatever you're told to do. And yet Jesus says those are the people who are truly great in the eyes of God and in his kingdom. Now I want to introduce to you two dear friends of mine who I think are modeling in a very wonderful way what it means to be a servant of Jesus what it means to help and bless and to go share this good news that they've received from Christ with others. And uh, I'd like to introduce to you Derek and Amanda Favreau. They're dear friends from Providence Community Church and I trust that you'll warmly welcome them here to Littlestown Chapel. God bless you. Thank you for sharing. So glad you're here today. flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. So for us, uh, to sum it up, this is who Amanda and I were BC, before Christ. We simply were ill-equipped and therefore unable to please God prior to developing a real relationship with Jesus as our Lord. Truth is, in our own ways, we were both more concerned about pleasing ourselves and others. So this was kind of us living in the world, as you might say, in biblical terms. Uh, Amanda, a little bit better with the details, is going to give you a, a brief outline of kind of how we walk through this with the Lord's leading. So with growth came the growing pains and tests 
in our choices, his way or our own. For most of you who don't know us, um, our journey together started in 2000. And in 2003, I got baptized. Um, I was a non-functioning alcoholic and it brought me to um, self-harm. So, and then I continued to do some of those behaviors and in 2004, I got sober. Um, and then in 2006, we got married. So the sobriety had to happen in order for us to get married. Um, because that was not going to mix. And so then in 2007, we had some hardships for our first year. It was not honeymoon. Um, both broken people coming together. And I got into a bad car accident and felt that God had told me to go return to a non-denominational church that we were attending, or I had attended before we got married and started serving in the young adult ministry. So but before all that, you need to understand that I had a, a lot of bitterness, a lot of anger. Um, I did not know how to submit as a wife either. And I threw the divorce word around a lot. And I realized that I needed to just start praying on how I could serve my husband, how to be the wife that God needed me to be first before I started going and serving the community. Um, and then 2008, nine, our marriage was still on the rocks and we reached out to our uh, church family for help in the way of mentoring, a mentor couple we had and marriage counseling as well as a course. And then uh, in 2010, our daughter Grace was born. 2011, Derek got sober. And in 2014, Amen. our son Noah was born. And at that point, you know, we thought we had things together, but it still was unmanageable. We had a home that was just not uh, based on the right priorities, and Derek was addicted to work. And I didn't really see him until after Noah turned a year. And, but God, he granted us much grace and willingness in times of struggle and success, figuratively and literally. And we had to learn how to serve together in our home first in order to stay married and to grow as parents. So yeah, that's kind of was our breaking point. There's a lot of things that, uh, that led up to that. But uh, end of 2015, as I was overworking, um, God took that job from me. It was something where I was, I was there 15 hours a day at times and pursuing hard, thinking I'm providing for my family, but really I was, I was inflecting on itself. It, it turned into be an idol. And um, pride is something I've struggled with in looking at it in recovery more recently, but really for all my life. And in that moment, I was really faced with a blow to my pride where God took that job and I had a decision to make. It was either continue to go back to the same pool and swim around with the rest of them again, uh, or I turned to Amanda and said, what do you want us to do? And she looked right at me and said, uh, we talked about starting my business for a while, and she said, I want you to go for it. And that was all I needed, those three words that gave me confidence, uh, and really the, and it freed me up to go for it. And that put my faith into action more than anything else I really had done up to that point. It allowed me the ability to set my schedule. Um, obviously, I couldn't just hang around and sit on my hands all the time, but it allowed me to put the big things in my 
together with the priorities, being at home for dinner, serving at church, going to church every Sunday was, was something I wasn't able to do all the time because of work interference. So once we got to that place, uh, we were kind of, God was setting us up really through all that to start serving together, uh, getting our home in order. Uh, and then the service together came through in, in powerful ways. Um, first and foremost, just being there for the kids, getting them to uh, get to know Jesus and having him be at the forefront of our home. And then being in a sober home, Amanda shared about starting to get sober. But we started going to meetings together, joining faith fellowships together, serving in a disabilities ministry at the church we came from down in Baltimore. That was something that uh, we both had hearts for, but we were able to, to work together in it. Amanda's a nurse by trade. I'm a, a, a fitness trainer, wellness type of person. So we both had hearts on serving folks and caring for others, but he used us together in that. And that was something that really started to show that we had some interlocking gifts that were being deployed. Um, and then recovery. Amanda was a, was a pioneer in recovery for our family. So she was sponsoring folks. And you're not familiar with the term sponsor, it's like a coach or a mentor. Um, it's, I watched that a lot, and actually she was a great power example for me. So as I became sober and able to, to align my priorities, next thing I know, you know, we're starting to walk with people together, couples. And then we're also, you know, we follow the Paul to Timothy model in our home. We have sponsors, folks that we look to and, and, and get advice from and grow with, and folks that we're helping alongside with. So that's been a big deal for us. In, in, in getting into the fray with people. And then uh, most recently, uh, Amanda has a younger sister and she's been living up in this area for about five years. A couple years ago, we got the pull that we needed to leave Baltimore. We're both from uh, South of Westminster originally. So we just kind of were like, where, where to go, Lord? And all the plans and different things were up in the air and uh, Hanover kept coming to us. And so we uprooted and uh, came to Hanover. Soon after, we started to realize the Lord wanted us, affirmed that the Lord wanted us here. Uh, we plugged into a church locally um, via her sister, um, really connected with a lot of folks right off the bat, and, uh, and the Lord started giving us service opportunities, things that we weren't signing up for, but we were prepared for, uh, similar to what Pastor Scott was talking about. Things that God had lined up that we couldn't have done in our own strength. Amanda's a nurse, as I mentioned. She got involved with the medical team. She serves as the medical team leader. You know, everything from emergency response to people needing band-aids and things, just making sure those things were on site. Um, I did some work down in the city with um, incarcerated youth. You know, like I said, from Westminster, kind of a country kid, serving those kids, but I did that for two years. God kind of just kept telling me, go back there, go back there, and he'd show up. So when I'm up here, um, the church that we're at asking to be a deacon over the benevolence fund. So I'm finding that that service with those disability kids, serving the kids in the prisons, is now enabling me to have uh, a bit more insight in serving this benevolence fund at the church. So it's been a big deal for us, but it's not been some stuff that we've done in our own strength. Amanda has had a vision for Not About Me Ministries, which means, you know, it's to say that a bit slower, it's I-N-A-M, it's not about me. And, and, and the cross is, is, is right in the center of that. And, uh, and that's been a big deal. We put on keychains. And it's just a small little way to, to help people keep Christ in mind. Um, and for me, um, 
we're starting to work together. Her skills as a nurse um, in wellness with the business that I have been propelled into, we're starting to have more overlap there. So this is things that in our own strength, in our own lanes, God is preparing, but we're seeing more and more how he's weaving it together. And it's just been a beautiful thing, and it's, it's a big part of our, our, our life within faith, and, uh, and we believe in recovery. So I'm going to wrap it up here. <laughs> so we went longer than last time. We choose to serve not because we have to, but because we want to serve him at the most. That's the core. So Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than men. And, you know, I started off in Alcoholics Anonymous, and there's something that they taught in the very beginning, and it's we have to give it away to keep it. So we have to give away our faith. We're, we're not, just like in scripture, we're not going to take our light and stick it under, you know, a basket or stick it under the rock. We need to go and share it with everybody else. So thanks for letting us share. Thank you. God bless. And, uh, you know, the Favreau's worrying about going overtime. That's the pot calling the kettle black. So uh, we, we, uh, I do understand that. Okay. It's not about me. Hey, it's not about you. It's about the Lord working through us. And that's exactly the mindset that Christ brought to his job. Because really, when you look at verse 45... This last verse that we read together, this is why we can serve because he came to serve us. This is why we can be the slaves of other people because Christ came to be our slave. I know that sounds shocking. What? You'd call the Holy Son of God, the creator of the universe, the judge of every person that there's ever been, you would call him a slave? Yes, I would because that's exactly what he's calling himself. He's declaring that he himself has come into this world in order to serve us and to be our slave. When you look at Philippians chapter 2 and you see that passage in verse 5 where it says, let this way of thinking be in your minds. Follow Christ's way of thinking. He came into this world. He clothed himself with human flesh. He took upon him the form of a servant. And he was willing even to go to the point of death, even death on a cross. And it's like Jesus is descending this staircase lower and lower and lower, the descent of humiliation in Christ's life. He went down further, 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 and even further. Why? To rescue us. We see in verse 45, it says, He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is why Christ died. I mean, he's already said it twice to the disciples. He's just said it a third time. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be arrested, condemned, beaten, and crucified. Why? To be a ransom payment for many. And by many, he means all. That's the way they would say it among the Jewish people. He's talking about everybody else. He's the one. We are the many. He died for us to pay a price 
to set us free. Now notice very clearly what he's saying here. He's calling himself the Son of Man. A couple things to point out to you. He calls himself the Son of Man. He's referring to a passage in, in Daniel's letter in the New Testament. Daniel's writings, excuse me, his prophecies in the New Test, uh, Old Testament. And Daniel has this vision in chapter 7 of this person who is so glorious, so, so filled with power and authorities on the coming in the clouds and the Ancient of Days, Almighty God gives this one who is like the Son of Man gives him authority and power over the entire human race, over the destiny of humanity. And all humanity is to serve and worship him. And Jesus takes that name and applies it to himself. It's, a, it's kind of a code name. Instead of saying, I'm going to go do this or that, he calls himself the Son of Man. And somebody has to really think about what he's saying to get underneath the surface what he's saying. It causes you to really think and grasp what he's saying there. It's also words of humility, a term of humility. I'm another human being and I'm suffering this way and I'm going this way. I'm identifying with you. But Jesus says, the Son of Man came not to be served, you would think that he would be served if he is the creator and judge and sustainer of all the universe that all humanity must bow down and worship you would think that when Jesus would arrive everybody would serve him and yet the paradox is no he didn't get served in fact at the end of his life everybody was beating him and spitting on him, and condemning him, and then killing him. The paradox. He came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life, this is how he served, to give his life as a ransom payment for all of us. Now, he had said earlier, and I think it's chapter 8 in Mark's gospel, he asks the question, what can a man give in exchange for a soul? What good does it do for someone to gain the whole world and lose his own soul? For what can he give in exchange for his own soul? And here he answers the question, this is what you can give for exchange of your soul. It's the life of the sinless, holy Son of God. The Son of Man in power and glory who humbles Himself by taking on humanity, human flesh, and then humbling Himself even to the point of death. And not only death, but the most shameful, painful, horrific kind of death. The death on the cross. He was willing to do that for you and for me. Why? To ransom us. I didn't know I was being held hostage. What, are you saying I was kidnapped? The truth of the matter is, every one of us has been kidnapped by our sins. And we're being held hostage by our guilt and shame. And we're under the judgment of God, the holy wrath of God that should fall down upon every one of us because of our sinful rebellion against God. Jesus Christ came and sacrificed his life to rescue us, to pay the price so we could be set free from that judgment, from that shame, from that guilt, from the destruction that our own sins inflict upon ourselves. He came to rescue us from that and set us free. And now we're free to serve. I don't have to work for other people and serve other people to try to impress them anymore because I'm already loved and approved by God because Christ set me free from God's judgment. I don't have to try to earn God's favor. I don't have to try to get God to like me and bless me because I'm already loved by God and liked by God and blessed by God because of what Christ has done. 
I don't have to try to cover up my shame. The things I've done that I'm absolutely loathing and disgusted by, oh, I can't believe I did that, I'm so embarrassed. I don't have to try to hide that, cover that up, peel that off somehow. I don't have to do that anymore because Jesus Christ, he paid the price, he carried my shame on the cross. So now I'm looked at by the Heavenly Father, the one who made me, who created me, who judges me. He looks at me and He loves me and He approves of me and He accepts me fully in Christ. I stand before Him forgiven and cleansed and loved and approved. And that's true of you if you've put your trust in Christ as well. And it's all because the Son of Man who should have been served instead came to serve. And He gave His own life as a ransom payment in your place and mine so we could be set free. He paid the price. The ransom was paid. And now we're free so we can serve. That little word for at the beginning of verse 45, it just simply means because of this. Even the Son of Man Himself came not to be served, but to serve. If he set this example for you, then we can follow it. If he gave his life as a ransom payment to set us free, then we can do this. We're free to do this. And we can serve others. We can go change those dirty diapers in the church nursery. We can be a small group leader in kids' ministry, even with those snotty-nosed kids that come to kids' church. We can serve our neighbors and bless them and help them, even though they're obnoxious and they play the music way too loud late at night. We can be patient in explaining again how to do a certain task to that coworker who was sleeping during the training session. We can forgive our spouse. We can love our children. We can share our good news that we have received with those who desperately need that good news. Why? Because we've received it. Christ died for us and He gave His life as a ransom payment for us. We're free. Now we can serve. So so the question is, all of us are trying to become great people. We're trying to impress others. We're trying to gain control and power. We're trying to, you know, just be in charge. We like... You know, being able to do whatever we want to do. You know, you know, I don't have to do that anymore. I can serve. And it's in serving others that we keep that momentum to move forward, to experience all that God has for us in growth, in maturity, in the abundant life, in recovery. If we're just willing to serve. Because the great people serve. Jesus served you, so now we can serve others as well. Other religions say God is great, and that's true. But our God, who is great, shows his greatness by humbling himself and dying for you. Our God is great, and you see that on the cross. If you're going to be great, you have to be willing to serve. Let's pray. So, Father in heaven, I thank you. I thank you for your loving kindness. I thank you for your mercy. I thank you, Jesus, that you were willing to humble uh, humble yourself and serve us. We don't deserve that. 
It's, it's absolutely astounding that you would serve us that way. And yet you did do that. And we praise you for your goodness and your mercy that you sacrificed to save us. Thank you that you did that. I ask you, Lord, that as we think about this, that we would put our trust in Christ and follow you with all our hearts. And I would ask that if we're really wondering whether we have the time or the money or the energy to put other people first, that we're, if we're wondering whether we really need to put up with the inconvenience and mess of serving others, help us to see that it's worth it. It's right because Christ has served us. Thank you that it's going through that suffering and service that we find glory. I pray that, Lord, we would give ourselves in service. I ask that, Lord, you would bless the communion table that we're about to share, the bread and the cup that remind us of the sacrifice of Christ. I pray that we would joyfully receive this bread and drink this cup remembering you and what you've done, Lord Jesus. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.